Chapter Two, Part One of Christian Non-Resistance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Two, Part One of Christian Non-Resistance in All Its Important Bearings, Illustrated and Defended by Aidan Ballou. Chapter Two, Scriptural Proofs. The preceding chapter presents a clear statement and thorough explication of the doctrine of Christian non-resistance. This will present the scriptural proofs of its truth. It is affirmed to have been taught and exemplified by Jesus Christ. If this can be demonstrated, all who acknowledge him their Lord and Master will feel bound to receive the doctrine as divine. In determining such a question, the New Testament must be our principal textbook. From its records, fairly construed, we are to learn what Jesus Christ taught, what his examples were, and what is the essential spirit of his religion. The evangelists and apostles shall be our witnesses in the case. Matthew verses 38-41, a proof text. In Matthew's report of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus thus speaks, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Matthew verses 38-41 What is the exact meaning of this language, and what does it teach? To whom does Jesus refer as having said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth? to Moses and his expounders. Read the following passages. Speaking of injury done to a woman in pregnancy, And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Exodus 11, verses 23-25. If a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, as he hath done, so shall it be done to him, breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him. Leviticus 14, verses 19 and 20. In the case of a false witness, And the judges shall make a diligent inquisition, and, behold, if the witness be a false witness, and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him, as he had thought to have done unto his brother, so shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, foot for foot. Deuteronomy 19, verses 18-21 through 21. Here we have a comprehensive view of all the personal injuries authorized to be inflicted on injurers under the Mosaic Code, from capital punishment down to the infliction of a stripe. And we have a strong expression of the design of those inflictions. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. Now, did Jesus refer to these precepts of Moses, and to the enforcement of them? Who can doubt it? And if so, did he intend to confirm or abrogate them? Certainly to abrogate them. For his words express positive opposition of sense. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. How? As they do who take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Instead of smiting back, and giving wound for wound, 
or going to the magistrate to get thy assailant punished, as the olden sayings authorize, endure to be smitten again and again. If under colour of the law thy coat be taken from thee, withhold not thy cloak, sue not back to recover thy spoiled goods. If men force thee to go whither they will, become their prisoner without turbulence. Resist not injury with injury. Inflict not evil in opposing evil. It hath been so commanded in time past as a means of suppressing and preventing evil among men. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil doing with inflictions of evil. Nothing can be plainer than that, so far as Moses and his expounders enjoined the infliction of penal persecution injuries in resistance of injuries, and for the suppression of evil doing, Jesus Christ prohibits the same. He enjoins his disciples never to resist evil with such inflictions. They are forbidden to render evil for evil, either directly as individuals, on their own responsibility, or as prosecutors at law. Is this a just and unobjectionable construction of the Saviour's language? If it is, the doctrine of non-resistance is already established by a single quotation. But this will be contested. Evasive Constructions of the Text It will be said that the words of Christ, in the passage quoted, are extremely figurative and intensive in their form of expression, that there is danger of taking them too literally, and that they must be duly qualified. I grant it, and have construed them accordingly. I ascertained first their reference to the sayings of Moses, and then determined the prohibition to be exactly commensurate with the Mosaic requirement. That resistance of evil which Moses sanctioned and enjoined, Jesus obviously repudiates and forbids. The prohibition is made precisely co-extensive in all its bearings with the allowances and injunctions of the olden code. This is the only fair construction which can be given to the great teacher's language. Should any one affirm that Jesus prohibits all kinds and degrees of resistance to evil, he could sustain his affirmation only by insisting on the literal expression, and would make the Saviour contradict himself, his own example, and the common sense of mankind. Should any one confirm, on the other hand, that Jesus did not intend to abrogate and prohibit all the personal and judicial inflictions of evil on offenders, authorized by the foresighted sayings of Moses, he would find himself in an equally perplexing dilemma. I have seen distinguished opposers in this latter dilemma. Evasion first. One says, I doubt if Jesus referred to the sayings of Moses, quoted from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. He must have referred to certain perverse rabbinical glosses on the precepts of the law, and to common sayings among the people pleaded in justification of frequent and extreme revenge. Is there any proof of this? No, it is mere supposition. But if it were true, why did not Jesus give some intimation that he was prohibiting only abuses? And withal, what glosses or common sayings could go beyond the original sayings themselves? They express the lex talionis in its fullest extent. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, breach for breach, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. It would be hard glossing or overstraining such sayings. This plea is futile. Evasion second. Another insists that Christ was only inculcating the importance of executing legal penalties, and of using lawful inflictions of injury against assailants in a right spirit. He does not prohibit the act, but only a vindictive, revengeful spirit in performing it. Life ought to be taken for life, 
and various evils inflicted on evil-doers, as a just punishment, and self-defense ought to be maintained, even to the infliction of death in extreme cases. But all should be done without revenge, without unnecessary cruelty, and in pure love to the offender, as well as with a sacred reverence for the law. In this way, Jesus is smoothly construed to have really said nothing at all, practically nothing that Moses and the ancients had not said. Did they authorize personal hate, malice, revenge, and wanton cruelty in executing the penalties of the law? Did they not positively prohibit all such feelings and conduct? Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart. Thou shalt in thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor, and not suffer sin upon him. In righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Leviticus 19. If there be a controversy between men, and they come unto judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous, and condemn the wicked. And it shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down, and to be beaten before his face, according to his fault, by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him, and not exceed, lest if he should exceed, and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee. Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 through 3. See Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 and 20. 17, verses 2 through 12. 16, verse 15. Exodus 23, verses 1 through 8. From these and other passages in the writings of Moses, it will be seen that, notwithstanding the severity of his code, he did not authorize individual hatred, revenge, and wanton cruelty in punishing the wicked. To make Christ prohibit only a personal, spiteful, malicious, cruel spirit in executing the authorized punishments of the law, is to make him the mere echo of Moses and his expounders. Whereas he goes absolutely against the deed, the act of inflicting evil on the persons of offenders. And by killing the body of the thing, he banishes the spirit of it. Seeming love only renders infliction of death or torture on offenders the more aberrant to Christian sensibility. It is too much like a mother kissing, while at the same time she presses her child to death, or a beautiful damsel, with all her charming airs, embracing and at the same time slowly thrusting a fine stiletto into the bosom of her admirer. Death is death, torture is torture, injury is injury, how gently and politely soever inflicted. And there is a kind of fitness in having stern-hearted, severe-natured persons to execute such sentences. Evasion third. Another pleads that Jesus was inculcating the duty of referring all punishments to magistracy and the government, that he prohibited a resort to private revenges, and only meant to teach his disciples to seek redress for the injuries done them in courts of law. This is a still lamer shift than the other. The connection gives no intimation whatever that this was his design. On the contrary, he enjoins non-resistance alike in respect to personal assault and legal wrong. If a man smite thee on thy right cheek, offer the other. If he sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. If he make thee a prisoner, and force thee to go with him, resist not. This does not look like teaching them to go to law for redress of grievances or encouraging them to make magistrates the revengers of their wrongs. He does not say, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Let every man take vengeance on his own offenders, and redress his own grievances. But I say unto you, 
look to the government, complain to the magistrates, carry all your causes into the courts of adjudication. Not a word of this. And not a word of it is to be found in any part of the New Testament. Jesus Christ never sued or taught his followers to sue men at the law. It would have sunk his divine dignity to contempt had he exhibited such folly. Evasion fourth. Another presumes he intended to discountenance all petty vindictiveness, retaliation, and litigation, but not to forbid these things in extreme cases, on a great scale, and where important interests are at stake. This is very accommodating, but very fallacious. Who shall draw the line between the great and the small, the frivolous and the important, in these matters? The injured party, of course. It is for him to say whether the wrongs done him are of sufficient moment to justify litigation, retaliation, or personal resistance, and the consequence is that small offenses, insults, and injuries are rare. Nearly all are too great to be endured. Jesus gives not the slightest intimation that he is drawing a line of distinction between great and small evils, and that he forbids his followers to resist ordinary personal injuries, whilst great ones are left to the law of resistance and retaliation. Such pleadings are only so many attempts of a worldly mind to procure itself indulgence under the Christian name in practices on which, written branch, the Son of God has placed the seal of prohibition. Evasion fifth. Another presumes to assert that Jesus never intended the precept, resist not evil, etc., for a general rule, but it was given to his early followers as their guide, when wronged by the tyrants under whom they lived. To resist then would be of no avail. It was better, therefore, patiently to endure. What a despicable expediency does this ascribe to the Saviour! What a skulking prudence! Resist not evil when unable to do so. Submit to irresistible tyranny and outrage. Offer the other cheek. Crawl like spaniels when you cannot help yourselves. But fight like dragons when you have a fair prospect of overmatching your enemies. To a mind capable of drawing such a meaning from the words of Christ, I should think the text would furnish a general rule, i.e., submit when you must, but resist when you can. If it were not utterly derogatory to the character of Jesus, and utterly unsupportable by a single hint in the context, it might be worth while to attempt its sober refutation. As it is, the mere statement sufficiently explodes it. Evasion Sixth Still another argues that Jesus, though he preached strict non-resistance, as to the duty of his followers in all strictly religious matters, nevertheless left them perfectly free in secular matters to resist, litigate, and make war at discretion. That is, while attending purely to religious duties, and propagating Christianity by divinely appointed means, they must suffer all manner of personal abuse, insult, outrage, persecution, and violence, without offering the least resistance, either by individual force of arms or persecutions at law. But as men of the world, politicians, merchants, tradesmen, money-getters, etc., they are at full liberty to follow the dictates of worldly expediency, and to resist even unto death all those who threaten their lives, liberty, or property. This stands on the same sandy foundation with the others, and cannot be sustained by one single decent-looking reason. Indeed, its bare statement ought to be its sufficient refutation. Evasion Final Finally, another declares that he does not know what Jesus did really mean to teach, in the passage under consideration, but he is sure it cannot have been the prohibition of life-taking, penal inflictions on criminals, defensive war, or personal self-defense under severe assault. Because Jesus himself had before declared in the same discourse, 
Think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew verses 18-20 through 20. And what is the deduction from these words? It is that if Moses commanded men to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, etc., Jesus does not abrogate or invalidate such commandment, and cannot have intended any such thing, whatever else he meant, since one jot or tittle of the least of the commandments in the law and the prophets was not to be destroyed or left unfulfilled. In answer to this, I may remark that it is rather a cavil than a candid objection, and would sound much better from the lips of an infidel than from those of a professed Christian. It is alleging an apparent self-contradiction of Jesus. He says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, i.e. by Moses and his expounders, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil thus, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, rather than smite him, turn unto him the other also. Then on the contrary he says, Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments, even the one which requires eye to be taken for eye, and tooth for tooth, and shall teach men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, etc. Thus the opposer urges a self-contradiction. Well, if there be a contradiction, and it weigh anything at all in the case at issue, is it not worth as much for non-resistance as against it? Is not Jesus as good authority against himself for the abrogation of the commandment as for its confirmation? Certainly. But if it would invalidate his testimony, then it only furnishes food for the infidel. Such is not the object, for I have heard this identical cavil from the lips of a venerable Hopkinsian clergyman. What then does it avail? If it proves anything against my construction of Matthew verses 38-41, to it certainly proves a great deal too much. It would carry us back and bind us hand and foot to Judaism, with its every jot and tittle. It would reenact the whole ceremonial, as well as moral and penal code, of the Mosaic dispensation. Circumcision, sacrifices, and all the commandments, least as well as greatest, would to be made binding on us. No Christian would admit anything like this for a moment. Many commandments have been abrogated. Jesus and Paul are explicit on this point. But it does not follow that any one has been absolutely destroyed or left unfulfilled. Many have emerged from the shadow into the substance, from types and figures into the reality. Others have been lost in the letter, and more than preserved in the spirit. All have done their work, or are still doing it, in the essence of Christianity. Did not Jesus mean to be understood in this sense, when he declared he had not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, etc.? Was it to preserve them in the mere letter and form, in the type and shadow, or rather in their essence, in the absolute reality of their spiritual excellence? Clearly, the latter. When he abolished the oath, did he abolish the truth? Did he relax the obligations of men to speak the truth? Did he weaken the sanctions of truth? No, he enhanced them. He exalted the truth. In prohibiting his disciples from all inflictions of injury and resistance of evil, did he absolve them from one iota of the law of love, 
the obligation to love their neighbours as themselves, the doing unto others as they would that others should do unto them? Did he weaken that great law? Did he not exalt and perfect its power and sanctions? If his professed followers should faithfully obey his instructions, in respect to this heavenly treatment of offenders, would they become worse, or would offences increase? Let the tongue of blasphemy alone presume to say it? We know the contrary. In a word, we know that this self-same doctrine of Christian non-resistance, as we deduce it from the passage before us, is the righteousness of the law and the prophets in its perfection and true glory, and therefore is in strict harmony with the doctrine taught in the 18th, 19th, and 20th verses. The cavil is silenced. Reason for noticing all these evasions. I have been particular to notice these various constructions of our Lord's words, these attempts to avoid the legitimate force of Matthew verses 38-41, through 41, and to disallow it as a proof-text of the doctrine before us, not because I thought they were really worthy of it in themselves, but because I have known them all urged and relied on by clergymen and reputable professed Christians of various sects in their struggle to withstand the truth. It is remarkable how very incongruous all these anti-non-resistant constructions, objections, and cavils are. Yet I have heard them put forth with great confidence, even by different clergymen of the same general sect, and repeatedly pleaded with apparent sincerity and earnestness as a sufficient invalidation of our leading proof-text. It is important to explode them, in order to secure the conviction of an order of minds, at once conscientious and intelligent, but liable to be misled by the confident special pleadings of those from whom they have been accustomed to receive their religious opinions. When we pretend to prove a doctrine, we ought not to quote passages which sound well to the ear, but to demonstrate that these passages cannot fairly be construed into any other sense than that in which we take them. To have demonstrated Matthew verses 38-41 to be an undeniable proof-text of our doctrine is no small achievement in this department of my work. This once established, I can accomplish the rest with little difficulty. What I insist on, then, is that I have adduced one fundamental proof from the highest scriptural authority. If this cannot be invalidated, if it must be admitted, if the passage cannot fairly be construed to mean anything else than I have shown, the probability is that I shall find ample corroborative proof all the way through the New Testament. I therefore proceed to make a further quotation from the same chapter and discourse. Second proof, Matthew verses 43-48 through 48. Ye have heard it that hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Verses 43 and 44. This is plainly in the same strain, and of the same import with the other. It is clear, explicit, significant, and forcible. By whom the saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy, had been literally uttered, I cannot with certainty learn. Probably it had long since passed into a common maxim, but in its nature and origin was kindred with the preceding saying, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. It derived its principal sanction from the Mosaic injunctions respecting capital criminals and doomed national enemies. Read the following passages. If thou shalt hear say in one of thy cities, which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there, saying, Certain men, the children of Belial, are gone out from among you, and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which ye have not known. Then shalt thou inquire, and make search, and ask diligently. And behold, 
if it be truth and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought among you thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword destroying it utterly and all that is therein and the cattle thereof and thou shalt gather all the spoil of it into the midst of the street thereof and shalt burn with fire the city and all the spoil thereof every whit for the lord thy god and it shall be a heap for ever it shall not be built again deuteronomy thirteen verses twelve through sixteen but of the cities of these people which the lord thy god doth give thee for an inheritance thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth but thou shalt utterly destroy them namely the hittites and the amorites the canaanites and the perizzites the hittites and the jebusites as the lord thy god hath commanded thee deuteronomy twenty verses sixteen and seventeen thou shalt make no covenant with them nor show mercy unto them seven verse two in accordance with these sentiments david utters the following language plead my cause o lord with them that strive with me fight against them that fight against me take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help draw out also the spear and stop the way against them that persecute me say unto my soul i am thy salvation let them be as chaff before the wind and let the angel of the lord chase them let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the lord persecute them psalm thirty five verses one through eight with equal abhorrence of idolatry and of all the crimes of those who are holden to be outlaws and doomed enemies under the former testament but in striking contrast with the authorized hatred and vengeance exercised toward them jesus says love bless do good to and pray for them even though they be your bitter foes and persecutors he includes among enemies haters and persecutors all injurers whether personal social religious or national his words are equally irreconcilable with all hatred all persecution all cruelty all war all injury which one man one family one community or one nation can do to another the truly christian individual could not devise execute or abet any injury against an offending fellow-man what then would a truly christian family neighborhood community state or nation do could they act any other than the non-resistant part towards their foes and injurers if they loved blessed benefited and prayed for the worst of aggressors and defenders what a spectacle would be presented what a conquest would be achieved over all evil-doers does not jesus enjoin this sublime love and heavenly practice can he mean anything less than appears upon the beautiful face of his words what professed christian can erect the gibbet or light the faggot or draw out the rack or contrive any injurious punishment or gird on any weapon of war or give his sanction to any cruelty by individuals or society and yet plead that he is in the spirit and practice of this his lord's commandment does that man love his enemies bless those who curse him do good to those that hate him and pray for his injurers who hangs or shoots or tortures or stones them or holds himself sworn to inflict any such evils but let us hear the saviour urge his own precepts that ye may be the children of your father which is in heaven for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and he sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust for if ye love them only which love you what reward have you do not even the publicans the same and if ye salute your brethren only what do ye more than others do not even the publicans so be ye therefore perfect even as your father which is in heaven is perfect verses forty five to forty eight your father loves his enemies blesses those that curse him 
and does good to them that hate him, else the sun would not shine as it does on the evil, nor the rain distill on the unjust, nor salvation descend from heaven for the lost. Imbibe the spirit of your father, imitate his goodness to the unthankful and evil, put on his moral character, be his children. Be not content barely to love them that love you. Love, forbear with, benefit, and seek to save even the guilty and undeserving. Else what higher are ye in the moral scale than the publicans? Salute and befriend not only your own kindred, friends, and intimate associates, but all men, however strangers or hostile to you. Aspire continually to be perfectly independently good to all, as your Father in heaven is. What can be plainer than this? What can be more pure, sublime, spiritually excellent, or morally beautiful? It is Christian non-resistance, or rather that perfect love, of which true non-resistance is a distinguishing fruit. But let us proceed. Third proof. Forgiveness. He enjoins the duty of forgiveness on the same general principle. After this matter, therefore, pray ye. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, verses 12, 14, and 15. Then came Peter to him, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Matthew 18, verses 21, 22. See also the illustrating parable to the end of the chapter. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Mark 11, verses 25 and 26. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Luke 6, verse 37. The idea in all these passages is that the injured party claims a right to punish the injurer on account of some actual offense. Jesus is not speaking of mere envious grudges, causeless resentment, or ill will. He presupposes a real injury done, which, according to the common law, an eye for an eye, etc., or, in other words, according to strict natural justice, might rightfully be punished by the infliction of an equivalent evil on the offender. He does not palliate the offense nor deny the ill desert of the guilty party, nor require that his wrong should be considered right. He addresses the injured party, the rightful complainant, and commands him to forgive his injurer, i.e., not to exact the same infliction of the deserved punishment, nor to hold the offender punishable on his account, but to leave him as an object of pity, even though he be one of dread, uninjured, a subject of the same kindness as if he had committed no offense. He is to inflict no evil upon him on account of his trespass. This is human forgiveness, as enjoined by Jesus on all his followers. To enforce this, he declares that our Father in heaven will forgive the forgiving, but will not forgive the unforgiving. He reminds us that we have all sinned against our Father, and are justly punishable at his hands, that the only ground of our acceptance with him, and of his continued benefactions, is his grace, not our merit and that we are perpetually entreating him to bless us in spite of our evil deserts. Therefore he enjoins that we forgive our fellow men their trespasses against us, as we beseech God to forgive us the sins we have committed against him. He requires that we do unto others as we would that God should do unto us, 
he commands us to refrain from punishing our offenders, and still to do them good, as we would that God should continue to forbear and do us good, notwithstanding our sins. And if we freely forgive while we pray to be forgiven, this will attest our sincerity, and fit our spirits for the reception of the divine forgiveness. God will accept and commune with us, for we shall then present no insuperable bar to his inflowing love and mercy. But if, while we sue for mercy, we exercise none towards the guilty, if, while we pray for forgiveness, we meditate vengeance against our offenders, if, while we ask to be treated infinitely better than we deserve, we hold those who have trespassed against us punishable at our hands according to their deserts, we at once betray our own insincerity, offer mockery to God, and present an impassable bar of hard-heartedness to his love and mercy. He is essentially a forgiving father, but he will not, indeed cannot, communicate his forgiveness to us. Our spirit is in opposition to his spirit. We do not worship him in spirit and in truth. We stand self-excluded from his presence, alike unforgiving and unforgiven. We cannot be at peace with him, nor worship him acceptably, nor taste the richness of his grace, so long as we desire to punish our offenders. It is only in the spirit of forgiveness that we can receive and enjoy the divine forgiveness. Such is the doctrine of Jesus. How blessed a doctrine it is to the broken-hearted, merciful, and meek! How terrible a one to the iron-hearted, who delight in rigorous human punishment! Here the whole superstructure of piety and religion is baptized in the waters of non-resistance. We cannot even pray in a punishing spirit without insulting a forgiving father, and imprecating on our heads all the deserts of our own transgression. If we forgive not, but persist in punishing them that trespass against us, and yet pray to be forgiven of God as we forgive, we only call on God to be as severe and punitive towards us as we are towards our fellow men. How tremendous a thought is this! Yet who can evade it? Jesus has brought it as a live coal from off the altar of God, and laid it on our consciences. Can the utmost ingenuity of man avoid the conclusion which these precepts of Christ, respecting forgiveness, are thus shown to warrant? I think not. Yet millions Yet millions of professing Christians authorize, aid, and abet war, capital punishment, and the whole catalogue of penal injuries. Still, they daily pray God to forgive their trespasses as they forgive. The language of the prophet Isaiah, in the 58th chapter, seems not inapplicable to them. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgressions, and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. See the subsequent verses. This drawing near to God with the lips, while the heart is far from him, is as common as it is reprehensible. And in no respect is it more so, than in meditating and executing punishment for offenses against ourselves, while in humble supplication we plead for the divine forgiveness of our own transgressions. Further Important Proofs Another important class of proof-texts, corroborative of those already cited, is the following. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. John 18, verse 36. Compare this with Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents, and harmless as doves. Also with Luke 12, verses 24 through 26. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. 
And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. In the same group we may include the following. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans, to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would not go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven, and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them, and said, Ye not know what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Luke 9, verses 52-56 through 56. Then came they, and laid hands on Jesus, and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus, stretched out his hand, and drew his sword, and struck a servant of the high priest, and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up against thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of the angels? Matthew 26, verses 50-53. through 53. See also John 8, verses 3-11, through 11, the case of the woman taken in adultery, and brought to Jesus to see whether he would adjudge her to be stoned to death, according to the law of Moses. After her accusers had declined executing the penalty, Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee, i.e. to death. Go and sin no more. These and similar passages are impressive practical comments on the positive doctrinal precepts of the Saviour. His kingdom is not of this world, and therefore excludes all military and warlike defenses. His ministers are sent forth unarmed, like sheep in the midst of wolves. They are therefore to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. All things must be conducted on the non-resistant principle. There must be no political strife for the highest place, no patronizing lordship, no gentile love of dominion. But they that really occupy the highest place must prove themselves worthy of it, by an entire willingness to take the lowest, by governing only through the influence of useful service. Government must doff its worldly insignia, its craft, and its prerogative to punish, and be vested in real truth, unglorified, unpampered, and undistinguished by exclusive privileges. This is Christian government. He and his followers might be treated inhospitably, as by the Samaritans, but no injury must be returned, not even though by a miracle fire could be commanded from heaven no such spirit must be indulged. Because the Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Therefore non-resistance of evil with evil must be the invariable rule of action for his disciples forever. They must never destroy men's lives, but endeavor to save them. Even the Holy One, at his betrayal into the hands of a mob, might not be defended with the sword by a Peter, because all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Evil cannot be overcome with evil. How is it possible to contemplate such clear, striking, mutually sustainable, irrefragable evidence of the scriptural truth of Christian non-resistance, without feeling the whole soul penetrated with profound conviction? But still the tide rises and flows on. End of chapter 2, part 1